Guys, welcome to the podcast. Today is going to be episode number 261, and I'm going to have Chris Stone, who is an avid bow hunter of turkeys out of California, and he's going to be sharing a bunch of information, and I know you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Before we get to that, I want to remind the listeners, anybody that's in the Phoenix or Arizona area that is interested in a turkey hunting seminar uh, my my associate Dark Colburn and I are going to be doing a free turkey hunting seminar at Calvary Church. Uh, this is put on by the Desert Christian Archers and the NWTF, and it's going to be uh, March 21st at 6 p.m. at Calvary Church, uh, which is b- between Cactus and Thunderbird right off of I-17 freeway on the west side of I-17. We're going to be doing a video presentation and then answering a bunch of question, you know, a question and answer session. Uh, So it's free. Uh, They do ask you to bring some cans of non-perishable food items uh, so they can donate those. Uh, But yeah, come out and see us. Uh, We'd love to to, um, uh, see you, love to uh, interact with um, my podcast listeners. Uh, so that's going to be a, a fun time on March 21st, Tuesday, 6 p.m., coming up here in a few days. Uh, also, I'd like to thank you guys as my listeners, as the supporters of this podcast. Thank you for all of your loyal support. And I'd like to thank the following sponsors that make this podcast possible. And you can go down in the show notes and see the different discount codes with each company. Uh, I'd like to thank GoHunt.com Insider. I'd like to thank Kuyu. I'd like to thank PhoneScope and The Outdoorsman's. And um, make sure, like I said, to go in the show notes and you can see um, the different discount codes uh, where you can save money. And I appreciate my sponsors. And without them, this without them and you, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Uh, also, I have a few availabilities for the 2017 Gould's turkey season, which by the way, on that turkey hunting seminar on Tuesday, March 21st, uh, the Desert Christian Archers is raffling off a uh, Gould's turkey hunt. The tickets are $10. You get to come hunt with Colburn and Scott Outfitters, uh, also our sister company uh, that I started, uh, gouldsturkeyhunt.com. So all you have to do is buy a ticket for $10. We are going to be drawing and announcing the winner on March 21st. And um, you can also go to Desert Christian Archers uh, website and order tickets. You don't have to be present to win. Um, But uh, if you have any other questions about that, you can uh, send me a direct message on Instagram or on my email account at jscottoutdoors. And uh, guys, I just want to thank you and the sponsors for your support of this podcast. Let's get right to this episode with Chris Stone. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. I'm on the phone here with Chris Stone of Jackson, California, which is east of Sacramento. Chris, how you doing? I'm doing good, Jay. How are you? Good. Um, I wanted to have you on the podcast here because I know you're somewhat of a turkey nut like myself and... Uh, you know, California's season, uh, the general season's kicking off uh, the, the last Saturday, and it always starts the last Saturday in March. And so, like you just told me before we came on live, that uh, 
that's three weekends from today. Um, three Saturdays from today will be uh, opening weekend there in California. How's things looking out there? Uh, they're, <clears throat> they're looking pretty good. Um, I'm sure, as you've known, we've been hit this winter with just a ton of rain and snow and flooding and, you know, just a ton of weather, um, which has helped the drought conditions the last few years. But uh, the last couple weeks, um, probably the last week, week and a half, it's really started to kind of lighten up. Things are getting green and turkeys are strutting and starting to gobble. Yeah, it never ceases to amaze me. Uh, I usually start my turkey season out in California. And uh, while our birds here aren't even considering thinking about hens, uh, you know, I'll go out there for the opener in California on a, on a normal year and um, birds are strutting around and gobbling and tearing it up there the last, uh, you know, bit of March. And you say they're already strutting around a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I've seen a lot of groups with, um, you know, some dominant toms with the hens already. Um, still seeing some bachelor groups of toms and jakes. But uh, usually California, from my experiences, we have a real long, you know, rut, if you want to say, where, you know, they're doing their thing from March all the way into May. So... I know one of the things that strikes me hunting in California, um, kind of in central California, is how green, like when I'm usually there the last week of March, I mean, it's just green as can be. And um, is it, I believe it's called either red bud or rosebud. One of the two is just beautiful pink and just beautiful. Um, the contrast of the color, some of the photos that that I've been able to get over in California with that contrast. Um, it's one of the things I like about uh, following you on Instagram, uh, and for those listening, it's Chris Stone 185 on Instagram. Uh, it, it, it is those colors that California presents itself. Do you think this year's going to be any different? Uh, it'll probably be 10 times better. Yeah. <laughs> Even if, you know, it's hard to imagine that. Um, but honestly, in my opinion, and you know, I've been all over United States turkey hunting, in the springtime, California to me is the prettiest state in the springtime, um, just because of the vibrance of the colors, you know, the emerald greens, um, then the wildflowers, um, as you talked about, including, you know, the lupin, um, it's just, it's amazing. And on it, you know, I love it here. Yeah, for sure. Um, you get quite a bit of dew and condensation, um, out there, you know, do you wear rubber boots when you're hunting? And, and if not, um, what do you wear on your feet to um, stay dry? You know, I, I don't because we, I, where I hunt majority here is in the foothills or, you know, a little bit higher in the mountains. And for me personally, wearing rubber boots um, for, you know, hiking several miles it's just not comfortable, so I wear the same boots I'd wear on a elk hunt. Um, I might wear gaiters, you know, if it's really wet outside to help with the water, but I just try to wear a boot that's, you know, comfortable for me where I can cover ground as fast as possible. Tell me and the listeners a little bit about um, turkey hunting opportunities in California 
it, it never ceases to amaze me actually how many hunters there are in your state. And for us that don't live there, I was actually born there um, and moved away when I was, uh, I think, before I was even one years old. But, uh, you know, for a lot of us, we don't think of California as a big hunting state, but there's actually a ton of hunters um, and there's a lot of hunting, actually, opportunities in California. Speak a little bit about the turkey hunting out there and, and how big it is and, you know, compared to some of the other places you've been. Um, it's like you said, it's, it's huge. I mean, there are a ton of turkey hunters in this state from, you know, the Oregon border all the way down south. Um, you know, I believe the central part of the state to the northern it's going to be a higher population of hunters just because it's a higher population of turkeys. Um, but the state does offer a ton of uh, turkey hunting on public grounds, um, specifically national forest, BLM property, and a lot of refuges where they give out draws and permits the first few weeks before they open it up to the public kind of, you know, on a free-for-all basis. Um we, we do hunt a lot of the public, but you're going to have to hunt harder to, you know, be successful unless you have a hidden little honey hole. Yeah. And then talk about some of the <clears throat> private land uh, opportunities there and maybe what people, um, you know, there's obviously guides and outfitters that work in California, but also opportunities for, I mean, I have a lot of local California listeners you know, on private ground, what do you see some of the cheaper leases go for? What do you see some of the more expensive leases go for? Is you know, do the do you pay by the bird? Do you pay by the day? Do you pay by the hour? How does it work? Um, a, a little bit of what I know. I have a good buddy, uh, Aaron Brooks, who's you know, world-renowned turkey hunter and caller, um, who's called and hunted with you know your buddy dave smith uh quite a few times but he guides in el dorado in amateur county and on the guiding aspect he'll charge nowadays about five six hundred dollars for a guided hunt um you know and he leases out properties to do his his um guided turkey hunts I know some guys who lease out properties as groups and you could find a lease on private property depending on how big it is from $800,000 up to $10,000. It just kind of depends on the size and, you know, the turkey population, so to speak. Yeah, and uh, the season in California, it's a it's a pretty liberal season, like you said, going from the end of March all the way into May, correct? And so there's a lot of opportunities, and plus, I believe California is a three-bird state, is it not? Yes, it uh, it's three birds in the spring, two in the fall. The spring season, like you mentioned earlier, starts at the end of March and uh, general season goes into the first weekend of May and then it goes an additional two weeks for just archery hunters so it goes honestly it's a eight-week season yeah and how do you see the ch uh, season change as because I know 
uh, from year to year is different, but I know as you get into late April and early May, all that green grass, all, all that country that uh, you've been hunting, a lot of times that grass turns and starts to even turn yellow and brown. How does that transition uh, affect you know what the turkeys are doing? Uh, a lot of that depends on the elevation you're hunting. If you're down lower from the valley, the lower foothills, usually by May, like you said, it's getting yellow and brown and the weeds are three four feet tall and it, it can get pretty tough but if you drive you know half hour 45 minutes up in elevation you're still in that green climate and the grass is shorter and you can also see a big difference in the birds and how they act from the lower elevations to the upper elevations um so it kind of just depends on where you're hunting and which what birds you're hunting for sure um and then how do those birds well let's back up um the birds you're hunting around that sacramento area are they all rio grand turkeys yeah majority of the ones i'm hunting in the elevations and per the species chart by the nwtf are rio grand turkeys there are a few spots I hunt in the upper elevations uh, that the NWTF considers Merriam's. And do you see those birds crossing over? In other words, on some of the places do you hunt, do you see like what you think is a pure strain Merriam and, a, and then in the same place you see a pure strain, strain Rio? Or, or do you have to actually move geographic <coughs> locations to have those different birds? Um, I do see a little bit of mixture. Um, I've killed some down lower that you look at it and you you can be like, man, that looks like a Merriam. And then I've killed some up higher that looks like a Rio. And then, you know, I've killed some in between that. It's just, you know, it's a pretty bird. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And for the listeners out there, um, describe uh, the characteristics of what you would say a Rio is and the characteristics um compared you know with them with the merriam what do you what do you see as the differences uh the di the biggest differences of course are going to be the you know the main body um the thirds and the secondaries on the feathers on on merriams are going to be much darker than a rio and then on your primaries on the fan and the wingtips on the merriams they're going to be much whiter much brighter color where Rio, your body feathers are going to be a little bit lighter, sort of speak, and then your tips of the fan are going to be more of a, you know, beige to a tan color. Yeah, so I mean, definitely, I would say the Merriam's, the distinguishing, the most easily distinguishable factor is more of that white uh on the on the tips of the primary feathers and then the rios can have that dusty to kind of tan um almost light light brownish little dark you know and it seems like the rios are smaller birds than the merriams would you agree with that um in this particular area i haven't noticed too much difference but i have noticed a, a, a definite difference in species from 
like say these Merriams compared to say Merriams in Arizona, uh, the ones down there I've seen are definitely on the average one or two pounds heavier than the ones here. Gotcha. So it could kind of, that could include or be maybe a part of the whole, you know, if they're crossbreeding. Sure. Uh, stepping back away from turkey hunting for a second, I did notice that you came down and, and hunted coos deer here in Arizona. Is that something you've done quite a bit? And I was just curious um, how that went for you and, and what your thoughts are on hunting coos deer. You know, Jay, I probably enjoy hunting coos deer as much as any other deer. Um, you know, we could probably go on for an hour about it, but to me, a coos deer is just, they're smaller, but they got so much attitude and they're the toughest deer, in my opinion, to kill, especially with the bow. And to me, that's why I'm so drawn to them. And I, I love hunting coos deer and I've only been hunting them for about six years now. I've been down to Arizona three different times um, and been fortunate every time to get a get a buck when I was down there. And when you were hunting these coos, were you um, hunting in, you know, December, January, or were you hunting in the early season in August? Uh, I was hunting in the later season in January during the rut. And were you calling these deer or were you, how, what were your tactics mainly for, for hunting the, the, the three hunts that you were successful on? Uh, the first hunt when I was down there about six years ago was with Ward's Outfitters. Yeah. And I was hunting um, out of a blind and tree stand on uh, salt and bait. Um, you know, since then they had the, the changes in the rules regarding the bait. Um, the last two times I've been out there, um, it's been a do-it-yourself hunt with a couple of friends, and we've hunted water and salt in bench and transition areas um, where a lot of the coos were rutting and moving from one range to another or one ridge to another. What dates did you come multiple times or do you just block out a week and come right during the peak of the rut? And if so, what dates were you hunting primarily or what have you found to be what you think are the best dates for a bow hunter? You know, it, it kind of depends on the weather, you know, how that can affect a hunt big time down there. Um, last year in 2016, when I was down there, I was down there the last 10 days of the season so the very end of january and the rut was strong the first few days and then it started to kind of peter out and i was very fortunate enough to kill my biggest coos to date end up being a 105 inch coos with my bow and then this year i was there the first two weeks of january and the rut was really strong, and I ended up shooting a uh, smaller forked horn coos with my bow. Nice. Um, and any of those out of a tree stand or out of a ground blind or spot and stock, or what were you doing? Um, both of them were out of a ground blind. Um, both of them were on 
water tanks um, in the mountains on primarily just kind of transition zones. And what type of pattern did you find uh, that, you know, when would the deer water during the day? What was the kind of prime movement time? Majority of the prime movement was that 10 to 2 during the middle of the day. Uh, we had, you know, cooler temps. We had some snow. And it seemed the middle of the day, that middle four hours, was the prime time for the most movement and activity coming through. I've, I've heard people say that are really into archery, um, coos deer hunting, that, you know, they basically sleep in. They get out to the blind about 9, 9.30. They sit till about 2.30 or 3, and then they do it all over again the next day. And a lot of guys I know that do really well, they swear by that just midday, and they're like, there's no reason to be there the first couple hours of the morning. What are your thoughts on that? I should probably start doing that. I'd probably get more sleep and wouldn't be so tired <laughs> by the end of the hunt. <laughs> I... Um, I tend to get up at, you know, dark and get in the blind after the, you know, the first hour of sunlight and sit there until late afternoon. Okay, let's, um, so you are obviously bit by the coos bug and you're a coos nut. Um, I just wanted to establish that for the, those that are listening. Let's bounce back to uh, California and turkey hunting and tell me a little bit about how you started turkey hunting and how that journey has led you to the psycho that you are now. <laughs> um, I began turkey hunting when I was a teenager with family. I think I was 14. And within the first year, I got the turkey hunting bug. I mean, I became addicted right away. And just it just grew and increased and it uh, got worse and worse, and thankfully, I have a very understanding wife now um, who tolerates it. But um, you say I began. You say now, like like she wasn't at one time. Oh no, <laughs> no she, or she, she always just lear been. learned to be. <laughs> yeah, you get. We'll we'll go with that. <laughs> but no, um, I began like I said with my family and began. Uh, hunting turkeys with a shotgun um, up until about 21, 22. And then that's when I switched over to the bow. And pretty much since then, I've been just a straight bow hunter pretty much for everything. Um, so I'm 37 now. So that's about 50, the last 15 years just been bow hunting turkeys. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about bow hunting turkeys you have seen uh you've seen it all if you're if you bow hunt turkeys you've seen it all did you start out hunting turkeys out of a ground blind and and i know that you've progressed to the challenge of trying to shoot a turkey without a blind at all um tell me about the early years and then and then when you decided that you know you wanted to start hunting them uh you know with no blind yeah, uh, I began hunting, bow hunting turkeys with a blind. Um, you know, the blind and, in my opinion, I'm sure we'll get to later, quality decoys like the Dave Smith changed turkey hunting 
for the better and, you know, are essential tools when it comes to turkey hunting. Um, I hunted turkeys with a blind for probably eight years. And, you know, I would wear all black from the waist up. You know, I paid attention to the detail, um, you know, and used quality decoys. And we really had really great high success. And about, like I said, seven years ago, I just wanted more of a challenge and saw a few people that were starting to hunt turkeys without blinds doing in what I refer to as a natural setup or natural style where you're not using a blind, you're dressed in camo, you're trying to blend in with your environment and you're calling birds in close. And to me, in my opinion, hunting a turkey without a blind in camo, you know, no barriers to block you, having birds come in within 20 yards, that is in my opinion, one of the toughest ways to hunt turkeys and it's, it's very challenging, but it's just, when it happens, comes together, there's nothing better in my opinion. Yeah, it's pretty darn neat. Let's back up to the blinds and talk to me, you know, the listeners out there that do use blinds. Um, what is your opinion on setting up blinds as far as, let's say you have some birds roosted are you setting the blind up that night, let it get dark, and setting the blind up an hour after they fly up? Are you getting in there really early? H- how much noise have you been able? Have you seen that you've been able to get away with as far as popping up the blind uh, where, when they're in the roost? And any any advice and and just kind of talk about how people can be better at what they do and tips and you know things you've learned in that. Yeah, I, when doing that, when hunting roosted birds with a blind, I always, always, always try to set up the blind that night before or a day or two before, depending on, you know, if you can do that, if you're close enough to where you're going to be hunting to get out and set up your blind. Because at early morning hours, when those birds are up there and they're waking up, or if they're even still asleep, if you're within 100, 200 yards, setting up a blind and not making noise is very, very hard in my opinion. Um, Even some of these newer blinds, which are fairly quiet, if you have a completely calm morning and you're making any type of noise, you know, that could be that one little thing that drives those birds to fly in the other direction and there goes your morning hunt. So when you say set the blind up early, you're saying do pre-scouting and figure out where those birds are roosting and you've had consistent success with those birds coming right back to that roost. So maybe two days before you get in there and get the blind set and then you just, then you back out of there. Is that, is that what you do? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much what I do. Um, I'll try to, if I know where the birds are roosting, you know, say it's just a natural roost location where they're always going to roost. I'll go in there the evening before the hunt or a day or two before and set up the blind. Now, if I'm hunting an area where I have no idea where the birds are roosting and I'm going in there that morning, um, you know, I'll, I'll locate them on the roost once they start gobbling and then I'll get to 
a safe distance from them to where I believe I can set up the blind decoys and such without being seen or heard. And usually, depending on the terrain, that could be, you know, it could be further than what I may have set up the blind if I did it the day before. What kind of tolerance have you seen turkeys have with ground blinds? I've seen where we've set up blinds in the wide open on an open hillside or open field with no cover around it and had decoys out 10 yards and they come right in and act like the blind's been there for a month. But I've also seen that same scenario where birds have came into 100 yards, seen the blind, and turned around and took off the other way. Um, majority of time, if I can, I always try to blend in the blind to my setting, you know, the brush, the trees, um, as best as I can. What have you, you know, what is the distance if you're hunting out of a ground blind? I mean, like I, I've been able to set decoys literally like five, six, seven yards away from the blind, and it doesn't seem like a, most of the time the turkeys, it doesn't even bother them. True. Yeah, I've um, done the same. I think the closest I've had decoys to the blind was about seven, eight yards, and the furthest I probably had them was. 14 or 15 yards just depending on where the blind sitting and where I expected the turkeys to come from um, there might be a, a little rise or a little trail or an opening where the decoys at 15 yards will be more visible and they'll see them they'll come in versus if I have the decoys at eight yards from where they're coming they might not see them and they might not come in and they might hang up so I guess it kind of all just depends on, you know, the, the terrain, where you're set up, and the land. How important is it, like, if there's a group of turkeys feeding and you kind of have the path of progress that, that, you know, that they're working and you try and get out in front of them and set your blind and set your decoys, like, I mean, have you had it work where you just set the blind out literally out in the open, the sun shining on it, and you just set the decoys where they, you know, they'll see the birds first? Or do you always try and set, do a setup somewhere where the blind is maybe in the shade or, you know, behind some cover? Probably 99% of the time I try to set up where I've got some type of cover where I could blend the blind into the cover where I can put the sun behind the blind. Um, that way, when they come in see the decoys, they don't see this camo-looking object that doesn't look real or unnatural to them. So majority of the time, I try to use cover and blend it in that blind as best as possible. And let's say the birds are, um, you know, at 6 o'clock and... How do you set your decoys up in relation to a clock, so to speak? Do you set the, you know, do you do you set the decoys and set the blind directly in line, you know, on the other side of the birds, or do you set it at a 45? How do you do that? I usually try to set, depending on where the birds are, um, are you 
let's go back. Are you talking reference like the birds are six o'clock in the morning or six o'clock behind me? No, I'm I'm sorry. Like like on a clock, if the birds were say at six o'clock, and you know you're you're. I guess what I'm saying is I'm trying to line it up where if you've got birds and you're out in front of them trying to get in their path of progress, do you put the blind behind the decoys or do you set the blind off to the side so that all they do is see the decoys, but they don't see the blind behind the birds? Yes, I I try to do that exact thing. Um, I never, whether I'm using a blind or not using a blind, I always try to set up where when the birds are coming into the decoys, I'm not directly behind the decoys because from, unfortunately, um, from spooking a few birds in my past hunts over the years, um, I've had birds come in. I was set up directly behind the decoys and they're looking at those decoys and they're also looking past the decoys. So if they see anything that doesn't look right, they're just going to, look harder and then if they don't like what they see they're gone so i always try to set up to the side of the decoys to where the birds as they're coming into the decoys um, i'm off to the side and it's much tougher for them to catch movement or something they don't like or something they see in other words you try and put yourself in the position of the birds and as they're progressing towards your position in their field of view they see decoys but they see nothing else and and they're focused on the decoys and you're either to the left or you're to the right but you're not in their field of view behind those decoys you're off to the side so that right so they it offers a free lane that they come up and approach the decoys and they're not they're focused on the decoys not anywhere near where you're at correct i I've, I've done that i mean yes that's what i'm saying and i've also in some really thick timber that I've hunted before have put the blind almost in a position where the decoys to get to the decoys, they had to walk right by the blind from almost behind me at like a five or six o'clock angle to where by the time they get up to the blind, they're so focused and locked in on those decoys that when they get in my visual sight, they're, I mean, at four or five yards going to them and they're not looking back behind them because they're so locked in on the decoys that it's almost, uh, you know, it's almost unfair to them. So how does your approach now with, with not using a blind differ from using a blind and what are some of the tricks that you've found that make you successful bow hunting without a blind? you got to pay attention to little detail. And when I refer to that, I'm talking about you. You, you want to blend in with your environment um, to the T. Um, you know, like, you know, out here in Northern California, it's very lush. It's very green. It's very kind of dark colors. Um, for example, I wear something camouflage that matches what the area I'm hunting in and I'll camo everything out, you know, my clothes, my hands, my face, my bow, even down to the fletchings on my bow, just because I've had a few circumstances in the past where I've had something that didn't match. And I, I swear that at 20, 30 or 40 yards, 
that bird picked that color or something off that just didn't fit in with the environment, with the colors. And so to me, blending in, <clears throat> excuse me, blending in and becoming a part of, you know, where you're hunting is, is huge. Yeah, I agree with the fletchings. You know, turkeys can see color, and um, so it's it's real important if if, if your fletchings, uh, if they see the fletchings, they're gone. Um, the, you know, if they see color, they're gone. Uh, let's talk about uh, how do you use any sort of trees or cover if you've got a decoy spread out? Are you in? Are, do you have a tree behind you like shotgun hunters do, or? Are you kind of to the side of a tree where you can draw and then you lean out? How, how do you, what do you look for in that? I usually, bow hunting, you know, without a blind, natural setup. When I'm up against a tree or a bush, I'm usually up against the side of it or slightly behind it. Um, I don't want to be completely behind it because then it blocks some of my shooting lanes and where if something happens where the bird goes one way or the other, I might not be able to shoot in that direction. Um, and so I kind of just get up alongside of the tree or the bush, become part of that tree and bush. And that's kind of going back to the camo, you know, going down to every little detail with the colors that allows me to blend in with that tree and really rely on just not moving. And if you're a left, if are you a right-handed shooter? I'm a right-handed shooter. Do you set up on one side of the tree or the other? I heard you say you never get directly behind a tree, but you might get kind of to the side. Are there any tips that you can use as a right-handed shooter? You know, would you be more on the right side of the tree, the left side, you know, in relation to, let's say, if the decoys were out in front of you? Um, talk a little bit about that. I'll be, if the decoys are out in front of me and I have a big tree or bush or rock, I'll get on the right side. Um, just because. Why? Now, okay, as a right handed shooter, majority of the time, I try to be on the right side of the tree. Just do the fact that being in camo, being without a blind, you may have birds that hang up at 40, 50 yards for a few minutes that are kind of checking out the decoy spread before they commit. And if you're not totally comfortable, what I see a lot of times with people I take out is they start to move. And so for me, I try to get on the right side because I can lean or sit up against that tree. Um, also, if birds are coming from the left, what it does is it blocks their view of me even more until they're right into the decoy spread. Um, a few times, very rare, I'll set up to where the tree is on the right but that might be because those turkeys are coming from that right side and I'm going to use that tree for a little bit of cover until they're in the decoy spread. But majority of the time, like I said, I, I set up on the right side of the tree to where I can sit comfortably up against that tree and get as close to the tree as possible and kind of blend into it to where I'm comfortable, where I can 
sit completely motionless for as long as it takes until those turkeys come into the decoys and present a shot. Are you sitting on your butt or do you sit on your knees? Uh, I sit on my butt either on a pad or a short stool. Um, knees don't work for me after about one or two minutes. Uh, they just start to get very uh, achy and painful and they'll start to fall asleep and then who knows, I might just fall over and spook the whole flock of turkeys out of the area. <laughs> Do you specifically lower the poundage on your bow because you're going to be a lot of times sitting on your butt <clears throat> and, and draw weight and talk a little bit about what you do set your poundage at compared to you know coos deer or what have you is it, it you know do you drop it down and kind of talk about some of the technical aspects of that yeah i don't drop the poundage of my bow down um my reasoning for that is in my opinion turkeys are one of the toughest animals on the surface to get an arrow through and to penetrate and so I try to shoot a heavy arrow, uh, depending on which broadhead, you know, I might change up the arrow weight a little bit, but I always shoot 70, 72 pounds, like I'm hunting deer or elk or anything else, um, on turkeys. And, and that's reason why is, in my opinion, their feathers, the outside of them is it's a barrier and I've seen several birds get hit with light poundage setups and it just stops that arrow and they're gone and we never recover the bird okay let's talk a little bit about um broadheads you mentioned and then I also want to talk about shot placement but what broadheads have you found over the years work best for turkeys and then transition that answer into shot placement uh regarding broadheads in my opinion it depends on the setup um i'm going to go kind of from one end to the other um i've hunted with a lot of kids taking them out young bow hunters teenagers who are shooting lighter setups and they in my opinion shooting an expandable that's bad news i've um i recommend for a lighter setup to use a two or three blade uh fixed head just to penetrate those feathers in that outer surface of a turkey and to get the best penetration now going to a heavier setup where someone's shooting 65 70 pounds and they're shooting a 400 grain or heavier arrow um I think for turkeys, a big, sharp, effect, uh, expandable broadhead is probably the best bet. Um, I know a lot of guys, good buddies, who with that setup will still shoot fixed heads, um, and they do fine as well. But depending on shooting an expandable versus a fixed head, I think has a lot to do with your setup on the poundage and the weight of the arrow. Okay, so what would you say, you know, tell me an acceptable setup and poundage that you think would mechanicals or the, or the ticket? Based upon what I've seen, I would say to guarantee or at least 
you put the odds in your favor of a, a kill majority of the time with an expandable, you need to be shooting at least 65 pounds and have an arrow weight of at least 400 grains or more. Um, just for an example, two years ago, uh, I was hunting with a friend who was shooting 60 pounds and he was shooting a 380 grain arrow with a really quality, good expandable. He shot the bird, which was fighting the Jake decoy. Uh, the arrow just barely penetrated through the feathers to where it stuck into the bird and the bird didn't, didn't move or excuse me, the bird didn't stop fighting the decoy. He didn't know what happened. And so my buddy shot it again and the same exact thing happened. Just absolutely no penetration bird got away and you know, wasn't a very fun hunt. My buddy was bummed out. And soon after that he switched to a heavier arrow and a different broadhead for turkeys. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I've seen birds hit as well where, you know, they're fighting a decoy and, um, I had a, a friend of mine, uh, Brian Rimza, his wife shot a Goulds um, down in Mexico, um, shot it several times, and it was still fighting the decoy. And when it, it kept getting hit by the arrow, it actually thought that the decoy was the one that was inflicting the, <laughs> you know, the, the shot. Yeah. So it just got even more aggressive <laughs> with the decoy. Yeah, I've seen that a few times. Um, talk about shot placement as a bow hunter. I know that... Uh, you know, hit them high, watch them die, hit them low, watch them go has been a pretty good mantra. Um, just curious your thoughts on placement. Uh, I agree with that. You know, you have the headshot, which, you know, if you're shooting a um, head or broadhead for specifically for headshots, you have the head and neck area. Now, if you're doing body shots, like you said, hit them high, watch them die, hit them low, watch them go. Also, if you hit them too far forward, you're going to watch them go. Um, nowadays, I've seen too many 3D targets and paper targets that have the vitals either imprinted or drawn onto them, which, in my opinion, are absolutely not not great shot placements. They're too low and they're too far forward. Um, the best thing for turkeys for shot placement is if it's broadside to go up the legs and the vitals are going to be halfway up to three quarters of the way up that body. If it's quartering to you, away from you, or facing you or facing away from you, is to go directly between the legs. And again, you want to be at least halfway up the body, if not to three quarters of the way up the body. On a turkey, turkey vitals, they sit up high in the body and further back than people think. And I learned this years ago, unfortunately, and lost a couple of birds because of that. Um, and so <clears throat> my biggest thing with shot placement is learn, you know, a turkey anatomy and where their vitals sit and, you know, be aiming for that. I also, I, I tell people like um, when, the, when the turkeys are all puffed out and strutting, you can picture their top, you know, the, the feathers on the top of their back. Um, you know, they're probably 
what like the length from your thumb to your pinky finger when you when you just you know make the number five in, in other words stretch your your hand out and they're basically about that long and if you can basically aim just below where that feather is going to hit the back like an inch down i mean pretty dang what you would think is high i think you kill them every time hitting them high um, yeah I, I compared to where you know where people see center of the body and they're like oh yeah I, I hit them dead center it's like well that's like four inches five inches too low yeah i i agree completely um you know and a lot of it has to do with just hunting turkeys and the time you're hunting turkeys and watching them um but yeah depending if they're in strut or not in strut just kind of learning how the feathers sit you know if they're not in strut those feathers from the top of the feathers to the spine are going to be an inch and a half from the top to the bottom maybe two inches where if it's strutting and those feathers are flared up from the top of the feathers to that spine, like you said, you're going to have four or five inches and you want to hit below that spine because that's where those vitals are, is right below that spine. Yeah. What do you think about a turkey that's not in strut and let's say slicked up? And what do you think about shooting them in the waddle, um, you know, aiming at the waddle and you know, which, which for those listening, you know, the waddles like the area between, uh, where the feathers end and where, you know, you've got the skin, you know, that kind of bulb look, you know, kind of round looking bulb looking things on their neck called the waddle. What do you think about aiming like just below the waddle to right in the waddle? And it's a smaller area, but if you hit any part of that, you've got a dead bird. What do you think? I've never considered it, Jay. Um, I've, you know, just because it's such a small target. Yeah, because it's a small target, but also because a turkey, the first thing that usually moves and is bobbing and weaving is that head and neck. Um, and for me, I just feel more comfortable shooting at the body vitals versus uh, waddle or neck or headshot. Okay, and let's talk about uh, the body shot, and let's say you shoot them, and, and let's say they're kind of flopping around. As a bow hunter, are you running and jumping on them, or are you reloading and, and preparing to shoot again? I'm reloading. Because I know that's a fine line. Yeah, I'm reloading and getting ready to shoot again. I carry more than one arrow when I'm hunting, and that's the reason why. Um, and there is just for that is, you know, um, majority of the time, if something is not vitally hit and it's not going to die, I'll put another arrow into it as quick as possible. And I don't like to get up and do what they call the turkey sprint or run at a bird. Because even if they're mortally hit, I've seen them kind of spook at a hunter, hunter, yeah, that's running at them, and fly, you know, across the county out of view and then it ends up dying as soon as it hits the ground or dies and while it's flying and you never recover it. Okay. So if you shoot it and it's kind of flopping around, you can tell it might not be a vital hit. 
you're going to just shoot them again and try and get another arrow in them. And then you don't run after them and jump on them. You actually let them kind of either die right in front of you or, or, or limp off. And most of the time when you do that and they're not spooked, they don't go very far and then you end up finding them. Yes. Yes. I, I do that. I will try to, you know, if I need to put another arrow into them quickly, I'll do that. Um, but if they're flopping, if they're hit good, but it looks like they're going to go 20, 40, 50 yards and maybe go into some, some thick stuff and die there. I don't ever get up and run after a turkey. Um, it's just, I've seen too many bad things happen when people do that, where turkeys have, you know, ran or flew off and people have lost turkeys. Um, in my opinion, you hit a turkey with an arrow and it's a, you know, you hit the vitals, he's going to die. Even if he goes 50, 60, maybe even a hundred yards, he's going to go lay down and die. And my opinion is best just to let him go, give him time, and then track him a little bit later. I had a doctor friend of mine from here in town went down. He he likes to bow hunt turkeys, and he went down with me and hunted goulds. And um, he had a bird come into the Dave Smith Jake decoy and came in and started um, just beating on this thing and he shoots he was in a ground blind and he shot and clipped like that part of the waddle that I was talking about and the bird kind of spun around once and just didn't know what happened and he went back to fighting the decoy Mm -hmm. and this literally it's a great video there's literally blood squirting out of the waddle onto the decoy and he's still pecking and fighting um the decoy it's unbelievable and then he shoots him again and the bird runs off and then we give it a little while and he he eventually gets out of the blind and goes and finds him but it 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 is amazing like that first shot i firmly believe with the amount of blood that was just squirting out he was dead on his feet if he would have got out of the blind we'd have never found that bird because it probably would have ran and then it would have flown. And, you know, all they have to do is pitch off of a hill down in a canyon. And even if you see where they go, I mean, how often does something pitch off and that you see the direction, but it's hard to see like exactly where they land. And then your margin of, of, you know, your, your margin to find them then goes exponentially down. I think, uh, once they take flight. Yep. I totally agree with you, Jay, on that. Yeah. So, and then what do you think about even like your second shot, you know, your follow-up shot? Sometimes, you know, they're moving around. I mean, are you at that point just trying to get an arrow in the bird, get it, you know, get them hit again? Or are you really precisely trying to aim at a specific spot? Uh, I still try to aim at a specific spot. Um, I don't like to waste an arrow, so to speak. Um, you know, I, I've got a few of them in my quiver, but I try to make it every arrow count. And so I'm, I'm aiming for, you know, the vitals, um, you know, or if I'm given only a, a small shot at maybe the head or neck or a, a spine or something due to, you know, maybe the bird is in some, a thick bush, then I'll take that shot. Um, but majority of the time I'm trying to hit something that's going to anchor and stop that bird. 
what is your what what broadheads are you shooting for turkeys like what is your go-to what will you be using this year uh this year i'll be shooting fixed head rads rad heads um it's a fixed head they've got inch and inch and a quarter size it's three blade um i'll be shooting those Okay, and uh, is that new this year, or did you shoot those last year as well? Uh, it's a new head I'm starting to shoot this year that, for me, I've found um, flies extremely accurate. Uh, they're made out of titanium. The blades are very thick, very sharp. Um, so I'm looking forward to putting a few of those through some birds here. Okay. How important to you is having good decoys compared to the you know 1999s <laughs> that you can get at uh, cabela's or walmart or anything else oh man it uh let me go back to about eight years ago i was hunting with aaron who i talked about earlier who has hunted with and been friends with dave smith and he came back from a hunt from oregon with uh dave smith prototype hen decoy and he kind of talked it up and at that point up until then we were i just used the old foam flambos and yeah i i killed turkeys on them but majority of the time those turkeys would come in to a certain distance from the decoy and then i'd have to make my shot so when he brought the dave smith hen decoy and talked it up we started using it it just it it was edit that decoy brought turkey honey especially with the bow to another level um the realism of that decoy brought birds into it to where they interacted with it majority of the time and since then I've been using the Dave Smith decoys. Um, usually use a Jake, the submissive Jake, and a couple hens, whether it be uh, the stand-up hen or the submissive hen. And since then, probably 90% of the time we have birds come in and they see those decoys, they come all the way to those decoys and interact with them whether it's fighting the Jake decoy, whether the Toms are getting on the hen decoys and mounting them, um, some type of interaction, which for a bow hunter is huge because it gives a bow hunter that opportunity to draw where the the birds are so focused on the decoys, they're almost blind and they don't see what's going on around them. And so to me, quality decoys are are huge, especially for the bow hunter or even the general shotgun hunter who wants to get a high percentage shot at a bird at closer range. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, have you used the full strut decoys, um, the, the Dave Smith strutter? I, I obviously use um, DSD decoys as well. Have you used the strutter? I have not. Um, I maybe I'm a little bit hesitant to, to try it just due to the fact that 
the area where I hunt, you know, we get some older birds, but we also get some two-year-old birds. And I just, I don't want to come into that one scenario where a two-year-old might come in and see a full strut and kind of get intimidated. So for me personally, I've always stuck with the submissive Jake DSD decoy. And for me, it's worked wonders from Jake's on up to, you know, big old palms. It's, uh, it's, it's a fantastic decoy and works. If you could only take one decoy out of those decoys, which one I've got my answer to, but, and I'll give it after you give yours. If you could only take one decoy, which one would it be? The DSD submissive Jake. Yeah, I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. People say you wouldn't take a hen. I say, if I could only take one decoy, it would be a Jake. Yep. And that, that Jake, that Jake just gets pummeled. It doesn't, it, it, you know, any group of Jakes or any Tom or group of Toms, it's if they hear hen calling and then they see that Jake, they they run to it. Like I'm gonna come and rip the head off of that Jake decoy, and and I've seen it over and over and over. Yeah. They just beat the, they pummel that Jake decoy. Oh yeah, and I mean they're already. They're already sold that there's a hen somewhere in the area due to your calling. And then when they see that Jake, it's just game on. Um, the way that Dave designed and Brad designed that Jake in that position, it's, I mean, there's no way a Tom can come in and not notice it and, you know, want to come in and whoop on it. You know, and like I said, yeah, I mean, and, and with 90 five percent of the time maybe even higher birds come in they see that jake decoy they're whooping on it unless they go to a hen decoy but that jake decoy in my opinion is the most effective decoy made yeah i agree i think it's that pose too with his head kind of cocked back and kind of you know his, his wings kind of you know tucked in and he's just like you know, he's just asking to get his butt kicked. And um, of all my decoys, that's the one that gets beat up the most. And uh, have you ever used two submissive jakes? Has there ever been a circumstance where you put, you know, a couple hens and two jake decoys out? I have, and that's only in the fall. Um, I've In the fall time, whether I'm hunting near a roost in the morning or near the roost in the evening trying to catch them coming back or kind of in an area I know they're going to pass through. I'll use, you know, two or three hen decoys and sometimes I've used two of the submissive Jake decoys just due to the fact that in the fall, you know, they're bunched up um, and to have a bigger spread of decoys out there has worked for me. And I've had times in the fall having that specific decoy set up with two submissive jakes um i've had groups of longbeards see it come in and attack both of them at the same time and me and my buddy me and my buddy joe we actually doubled up and killed two of those longbeards out of that group yeah i i 
you know, good decoys, you know, if, in my opinion, if you have those shiny blow up decoys and some of those cheap ones, I would rather not even take them. I've, I've seen situations, I used to use crappy decoys and I've seen situations where birds are like, nah, I'm not buying that. One question I would have for you, Chris, is have you ever, have you ever tried to create movement with that Jake DSD decoy? Um, have you toyed with either putting it on a string or have you toyed with, you know, having it, you know, some sort of rubber band scenario, you know, where that thing's constantly, you know, jiving or do you think it's fine, just totally stationary? Um, I, I know people who have done that, but I don't, um, you know, being stationary, um, it seemed to work perfectly fine for me. Um, the only time I think I've actually purposely put movement into the decoy is maybe in a situation where we've had a uh, end up gobbler out in this wide open field and we can only get so close and he's not responding to the hen calls and coming any closer. He's locked up with his hens. We've snuck up on little knolls to the point where we'll put the Jake out in front of us and we're actually belly crawling and to get his, the long beard's attention out there, we'll move the decoy back and forth and spin it until he sees it. And then once he sees that, you know, there's a intruder, you know, we'll pitch it down and then we'll back up 20, 30 yards. And within no time, that long beard, you know, leaves those hens and he's on that decoy and we've taken home that bird. Do you position the Jake's tail or the Jake's head in relation to the, the hen? Let's say you have a submissive hen there, or let's say you have, you know, uh, the feeding hen. Do you, do you, are, are you, do you think it's important to have the Jake's facing that or facing the direction the birds are coming? Talk a little bit about if you've ever seen, you know, placement of which direction the tail is facing in which direction the beak or you know the head of the tur the Jake decoy is facing and if that's important to you if i know which direction that bird's going to come depending on the terrain i always try to place the Jake decoy to where the head is visible whether it's pointing to the side or pointing at him do the fact in my opinion that long beard that turkey's coming in and he sees the decoys, but he sees that Jake, and then he sees the colors in the head. He sees just, he has a better, um, you know, visual of that decoy. It just convinces him even more that, yeah, that's a real Jake. That, um, you know, that it'll make him come in that much quicker to the decoys, where if the decoy is facing away from the bird, he may see it the view just from the back and he might not be convinced that it is a Jake. He might think it's maybe a hen that's feeding, looking away from him. And so I always try to make it the decoy face either to the side or towards the bird. To me, it's just, that has really worked and been real effective. And then if I'm using the submissive hen or the stand up hen or the feeding hen, I usually have them in front of that Jake kind of pointing in the same direction as in, as if the Jake is following 
those hens. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, do you ever do any if let's say a Tom's out there and maybe he's kind of out there at 70, 80, 90 yards and he's kind of hung up out there strutting and he's he's not, you know, most of the time my experience is when they see the Jake they come straight in. But let's say a bird was hung up, would you ever Jake yelp at him at all? Um, you know, maybe he's out there, maybe he doesn't realize it's a Jake. Would you ever change your calling to sound like a Jake? Or would you mix that in with any hen calling to say, wait, you know, in, in other words, he's going, wait a minute, there is, is that a Jake over there? Yeah, I hear it calling. Would you ever do that? I have mixed in Jake yelps, you know, during my call sequences. Um, honestly, I can't remember a time in that scenario where Tom's been hung up where he could see the decoys where I've used it, but prior to a Tom coming into that visual of the decoys i have used jake yelps uh just to give more of a you know make him believe that there's a mixed flock there's just not hens there's also you know a male bird a jake or a young tom in the group question about calling a little bit what mistakes do you think people make in calling turkeys um I'm, Jay, I'm a really aggressive caller, and I'm, aggra I'm an aggressive hunter. Um, in my opinion, when it comes to mistakes, I know a lot of people have talked about overcalling, and I believe that can be a mistake if you don't sound natural, if you don't sound like a real turkey. Um, for example, I've hunted with beginners who just don't understand calling or when they get out a box or a slate, they can't make that pure Turkey sound. And so, you know, you, everybody kind of refers to that sick Turkey sound, you know, it sounds like a dying sick Turkey. I believe someone real raspy, just, yeah. I believe if someone's making that noise and it just doesn't sound good. They can overcall birds. Um, to me, when it comes to calling is understand the language and make turkey sound if you're doing that you know you can be but you know you can have really good results being aggressive um and then on the other hand i've seen where depending on the situation calling too much um i'm gonna edit on the other hand when i talk about how i'm a aggressive hunter and i'm also an aggressive caller um You've always heard of some of the guys say, you know, they'll call cluck twice, they'll yelp three times, and they'll sit there for 20 minutes. So cluck twice, yelp three times, and sit there for 20 minutes. To me, that could really hurt someone because there might be a bird that's kind of teetering whether he should come in or not. He might have one hen, and if that caller was to be more aggressive and get that bird more excited, he might break away from that hen and come into you. If that makes sense to you, Jay. Yeah, I kind of agree. It's kind of like, you know, you kind of have to have self-awareness a little bit with yourself. If you're, if you're not a good caller, then, you know, maybe you need to rely on other things, but I would encourage people to at least get one or two different calls, whether it's a box call or a pot and peg call. Um, 
you know, get some some kind of call, a push pin call, get something that sounds pretty good and, you know, play to your strengths. If if you're not a good mouth caller, don't even bring a yeah. mouth call. Like, you know, if 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 you don't know how to run a pot and peg call, don't even put, you know, don't even carry it. Like play to your strengths. If you're good at a box, maybe have two or three different boxes. Um, but I think the worst thing you can do, just like in elk, I mean, if you're a bad caller, the the last thing you probably need to do is do a bunch of calling. Um, you know, and if, if you're better at one call than the other, you probably need to stick with your strengths. Um, you know, unless you're trying to work on, you know, mouth calling or if you're trying to work on pot and peg or, or what have you. Um, but I think if you, if you make good sounds, you can't really over call because we've all heard turkeys where they're just making all kinds of racket and they just go, go, go and call, call, call. And, you know, you're thinking, golly, is that, can that really be a turkey? And, you know, most of the time, sure enough, it is. Um, and, and I think the other thing, like you said, is I think you, you you need to mix up your calling a little bit. You don't need to do the same cadence, the same sound, the same sequence every single time. I think that's the biggest giveaway. Um, for a hunter, you know, um, and, and, and you know, I, I, I think we can all a lot of times pick out and go, that's a hunter. And, and a lot of it is not because of the sounds. It's because they're doing, you know, the the two clucks and three yelps over and over and over. And I, I will agree, I've heard lots of hens that sound very, very repetitive, but there's a difference between, you know, human repetitive and a turkey that sounds, you know, pure turkey. Um, you know, you'll hear them assembly yelping just over and over and over and over and over. Well, that's different than, in my mind, some guy on a mouth call that, you know, really has no business <laughs> blowing a mouth call and, you know, he, he puts the CD in and, you know, or the cassette tape in and he listens and he goes, gow, 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 and he's like, yeah, I'm, I, I call pretty good. And it's like, I think sometimes you need to get with your buddy and be like, how's that sound? And be honest, like, dude, you know, it's just not going to cut it here. You better stick with the box call. Like that, that's probably some of the best advice you can get is call in front of a couple buddies and just say, tell me the truth. If it sucks, it sucks. You know, like. I want to try and kill turkeys and, um, you know, you got to play to your strengths. Yeah, I, sure. I totally agree. And, you know, I've done that exact thing for buddies, you know, and like you said, be honest. Cause I mean, when we're hunting turkeys, we're trying to kill a turkey and, you know, any little thing can help a person out. And especially with calling, that's a huge part of turkey hunting is, you know, trying to help out your buddy and get them to be, and a more effective hunter in the woods, especially if they're going to be out there doing it by themselves and they don't have the experience or they don't sound like a turkey or, you know, they're not, you know, an expert at it is try to help them out, um, and try to get them started in the right direction. Um, and exactly like you said last week, I was talking with a friend who's just getting into it and, he had a mouth call and he was asking me how it sounded. And I told him, I'm like, you sound like a sick Turkey. Put that thing away. I told him go get a pot call. Nowadays, majority of those pot calls sound real. They sound natural. Go kill a few turkeys with that, you know, then expand your arsenal of Turkey calls. Just practice, practice. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, some of the easiest calls to learn on are box calls and, and you know, pot and peg or what, what we call slate calls, you know, made out of crystal, aluminum, you know, copper. There's all sorts of materials. But, um, you know, use those calls that are less distinguished as far distinguishable as far as like, oh, yeah, that's not real. Um, and I think I think a lot of people use a mouth call that have no business using a mouth call where they could, you know, throw some yelps on a box and sound pretty darn good, or they can put the mouth call in and, uh, just doesn't yeah. sound real. Um, so, uh, what's your schedule coming up? Uh, are you hunting in other States? Are you going to pound it in California? What's your schedule? Uh, in a couple season? weeks, we have the junior weekend and we have, me and my buddies, we have a friend and his 15-year-old daughter coming out from North Dakota to hunt with us. So we'll be taking her out to try to get her first turkey with a bow. Um, and then we'll be hitting it hard here in California. And I might try to go to Idaho in May, just depending on what's going on that time of year. And i got a couple 3D shoots I'm considering going to. But um, we'll be hitting it hard here, and I'm going to try to try to do an idaho hunt awesome sounds good and have you um have you shot an osceola and have you shot an eastern what or or have you just shot rios and merriams what like where are you at and in, in, as far as um, grand slam? i've got a rio merriam i don't have an eastern i don't have an osceola um i've been trying to put together a florida trip the last couple of years and i plan on making that happen pretty quickly and um i've got plenty of connections to get an eastern it's just one of those things where if i want to use my time and my vacation to go turkey hunting or to go elk and deer hunting out of state so it's just kind of a priority thing right now i get it totally um i get it for sure well it's been great having you on the podcast uh appreciate you coming on and sharing sharing your expertise and your knowledge I want to give you a chance to uh, let the listeners know how they can uh, find you, how they can reach out to you. I think we already said uh, Chris Stone 185 on Instagram. Uh, any other any other platforms out there uh, you'd like to use? I frequent uh, online forums such as Bowsight, Archery Talk, and Rock Slide, and also Coos Whitetail. And on them, I'm uh turkey slayer as t-r-k-y-s-l-r right on well uh i wish you the best of success on the season coming up in a couple weeks with the juniors and then following it up with uh uh, your general season and it's a three bird state in california but you can only shoot one per day if i remember right and uh uh so you guys uh, got some birds to kill and uh I can't wait to see some of the beautiful pictures that you're going to take. And, uh, I believe you're going to be filming. Yeah, them as well, we'll be correct? filming as well. Um, the last five or six years, we've pretty much been filming and doing documentaries on our season and putting those on film. Um, last year's hunts, uh, we're just finishing up. We'll, we'll be entering into the, uh, Kuyu film festival. Oh, good. You're going to enter that. Um, yeah, it's, here uh, uh, title is going to be Why We Do It. So, And it's got uh, me, my buddy Joe Frater, and um, Brent Miller. It's got all of our birds on it from last year. So, you know, the Kuyu rules are you have to be 
under 15 minutes. So we've got nine kills. So we're having a tough time of cramming nine nine kills into 15 minutes, but we'll, we'll get it done. Sounds good. Well, um, I look forward to seeing that. And do you have a YouTube um, channel as well? Majority of our hunts, uh, if you look up Super Relentless 1, which um, a lot of the hunts that we've done are under that, on that channel. Okay, cool. I'll have to check it out. Well, I appreciate you coming on and spending time with us and uh, wish you the best of success here in the coming weeks of the season. And uh, hope you hope you guys shoot some good guys. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. Um, it's been fun. And many times we're going to have to get together and put, put a few birds down. That sounds good, buddy. All right, Take you care. Too. Okay, Thank God you. bless.